Heavenly Father, such beautiful music which brings out such profound truths in your word. Please, we pray, uh, open the eyes of our hearts to understand these truths more clearly this morning and to be struck by a deeper sense of wonder of all you've done for us in sending that Son who is born unto us. Amen. In the last week, we have experienced the power, the devastating power, of a storm. Uh, our family was in the city at the time, and trying to drive back into Cherrybrook that evening was a military exercise. Uh, we found we had to abandon the car just off Boundary Road and walk in by foot, even then dancing around uh, snaking power lines. Uh, the walk home was almost like in a post-apocalyptic landscape. There was damage, there was darkness, there was danger, and there was devastation. Well, in the 8th century BC, another storm was breaking, uh, metaphorically speaking, that is. A new superpower was on the rise in the Near East. Uh, that was Assyria. And the clouds of this storm were indeed dark. Uh, the Assyrian army was ruthless and powerful, and its territorial expansion would devastate many nations. Now, over the preceding centuries, uh, God's people Israel had tragically turned their backs on God. Uh, the society had become corrupt. Uh, they were in a real mess spiritually and morally. And as a result, the storm of God's judgment was coming upon them. Uh, God would harness the territorial ambitions of the Assyrians as an agent of his judgment. And yet beyond this dark storm of judgment, God promises hope through the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1. Uh, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in darkness. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Well, uh, when the Assyrian evasion happened, the first areas to be overrun was this area in the north, the Galilee of the Gentiles. Here we have a, uh, a map of Israel, and here we have uh, Zebulun and the tribe of Naphtali. This was where these two tribes lived and the Assyrian army, of course, came in from what is now modern-day Iran, invading uh, in a, in a suddenly direction. And this was one of the first areas to be overrun. There is the Sea of Galilee. So it's a, in a, it was similar to as if the uh, Japanese had invaded Australia. Uh, Darwin would have been one of the first to cop it. So you see, those Galileans in the north, they knew the gloom of slavery and despair. And yet God would come to his people first where they suffered the most. It was precisely in these northern areas that experienced the devastation of the Assyrian invasion that Isaiah saw the light shining in the future. Look at verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You see, the prophet Isaiah foresaw a day when God would bring about a great reversal of fortunes. Those in the gloomiest darkness would be bathed in the most radiant light. Uh, those in anguish would become ecstatic with joy. 
And in trying to convey the sense of joy, Isaiah compares it firstly to a huge bonus on payday and the glee of soldiers dividing spoil. Look at verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. But what is the reason for the joy? God would bring, we're told, an end to all oppression and all conflict for his people. Verse 4 says this, For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke of that bird that burdened them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Now, if you know anything of your Bible Old Testament history, you'll know that centuries before this, uh, God's people had been languishing again under his judgment. They turned away from him, and as a result, God had allowed their enemies to be victorious over them. And they were in a period of cruel oppression by the Midianites. And yet, what does God do? As his people cry out to him, God delivers them. But we know, of course, it is God who delivers them. If you know the true story, uh, God uses just one man, Gideon, and 300 men to accompany him against a vast Midianite army. The point is this. God delivers his people from the oppression. It is God who does it on behalf of his people. And so God is saying this. In a similar way in the future, I, God, will bring about an against all odds victory for my people. I'm going to release them from a cruel oppression. Of course, oppression and war at this point, we're told, would be banished. Uh, military equipments would become redundant. This would be a release from oppression unsurpassed in human history. Look at verse 5. Every, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. So this era of joy, uh, this era when all oppression will be removed, is an era of light. And it will be marked, we're told, by the birth of a leader, unparalleled in human history. Uh, look again at the titles given to him. Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from this time on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So, who was this leader and when would he come? Uh, the people waited. The people waited and waited and waited. 750 years passed. And then one day, and no doubt with shaking hand, the author of Matthew's Gospel makes the following exciting link. Matthew 4, verse 12. 
When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So there is the light shining in the darkness. It is that baby Jesus. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Christ, the promised King. He is the child who is born to us, who will govern like no other. And it is now that we understand the titles given to him by Isaiah. They now resonate with a more profound and deep meaning. We're told it is Jesus who is the wonderful counselor. Now, counselor here does not mean somebody to whom you go for advice on personal problems where you lie on a couch. This is more in the sense of a political counselor. Uh, kings would normally have counselors, advisors to give them advice. And yet, this king has in house his own amazing counsel. He possesses supernatural wisdom. And wisdom, of course, is so key for any leader. We need leaders who make wise decisions. When we think about our current world stage and the political landscape of the current world stage, do we not think of maybe people who would come to mind, leaders who we would class as unwise, maybe rash, impulsive, even foolish? And how unsafe and how unnerving it is to be under the rule of people who have power but also are unwise. And yet Jesus is the wonderful counsellor. He has supernatural wisdom, the perfect wise ruler. Uh, if a wonderful counsellor speaks of his wisdom, a mighty God speaks of his power. Because Jesus is the promised king, uh, he is also divine. He is God the Son, we're told. He has absolute power. And as the mighty ruler, he will rule everywhere. Uh, not just over one country. Verse 7 again says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will rule everywhere and forever. As verse 7 goes on to say, He will rule from that time on and forevermore. That Jesus is the mighty God is very good news. You see, it means nothing can stop him fulfilling his manifesto promises. Are we not all too familiar with politicians who make bold promises in their manifestos but then fail to deliver? Jesus is not like that. He is the mighty God. He has the power to deliver on everything he promises. Of course, the passage ends by saying, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. This future, in other words, is unstoppable. It's where the world is heading. 
And such absolute power would be terrifying, though, if it weren't accompanied by this next quality. We're told this. Jesus, the child who was born to us, is the everlasting Father. Now then, we may scratch our heads at this point and think, uh, maybe Isaiah has got his trinity a bit confused. Because, of course, Jesus is the Son. How can he be the everlasting Father? Well, actually, this title of Father speaks of his compassion. It speaks of his concern for the weak and the helpless. It's not an expression of the Trinity, but rather the quality of this amazing ruler. Uh, Psalm 103, verse 13, brings this out. Uh, Speaking of God, it says this, As a father, he has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Uh, As we know from our own history, uh, tragically, total power does not often go hand in hand with compassion. Uh, We have seen many despots, many dictators, for whom power has corrupted them. And yet this dictator, the child who was born, is different. This is the benevolent, compassionate dictator. He has absolute power with perfect compassion. He rules with a fatherly care. And he upholds his kingdom, as verse 7 says, with justice and with righteousness. None of the corruption that usually accompanies power, just a governance by a perfect, just ruler. And finally, we're told, he's the prince of peace. This child brings peace with God. This child brings peace with each other. This child brings peace in our hearts. This is the peace that the Prince of Peace brings. Now then, on paper, uh, this all sounds wonderful. But where is the reality? Unto us a child has been born, and yet the world is still a dark, fractured place. Where is everything this child promises? And the answer lies, of course, in understanding the nature of Christ's rule. Because the Bible tells us this. The rule of this child has already started, but it has not yet come in all of its fullness. Ironically, this king's rule started in his darkest hour. Of course, it was on the cross that he was crowned. And it was on the cross that, against all odds, he won the victory on our behalf. He wins that victory, as in the day of Midian, against all odds. The victory over sin and death. It was in his resurrection that the extent of his mighty rule was revealed. His power and his rule is even over death. And it's from his throne in heaven that he presently reigns. And it is as people surrender their hearts and lives to him that his kingdom progressively grows. And it is at an unspecified time in the future that his rule will come into a staggering climax. For just as his people had to wait 750 years for the first coming of the king, so now his people wait 
for the second coming of the king. And the return of the king will dispel all darkness from this dark world forever. Then the prince of peace will commence this era of unending peace. You probably know that the Hebrew word used for peace is shalom. And shalom is an incredible word when we understand it more deeply. Uh, Shalom means this, absolute wholeness, complete flourishing. So you see, in the age to come, all those who have bowed their knee now to the Prince of Peace will enjoy unending peace, shalom, wholeness, complete flourishing. In this age to come, poverty will be swallowed by glorious prosperity. In the age to come, disease will be supplanted by perfect health. In the age to come, death will be banished by eternal life. In the age to come, relational fracture will be replaced by perfect relationships. In the age to come, sadness will be consumed and displaced by unending joy. So two practical applications as we think in conclusion. How should we respond to this? Well, uh, Jesus is the Prince of Shalom. Are you ready for his return? Have you bowed your knee to him now? Have you invited him to be the Lord and King and Savior of your life? Sometimes people are concerned at the prospect of submitting to Christ's rule. They think that in some way it will hobble them in their enjoyment of life. And yet the complete opposite is the case. It is worth remembering what we see in this passage. He has the perfect blend of wisdom, power and compassion. He is the ruler with whom we can entrust our lives. He knows what is best for us. And he has the power to release us from the oppression of sin and death. And ultimately we will enjoy shalom under his wonderful rule in the renewed heavens and the renewed earth. And if we have submitted to his rule, are we living every day for his kingdom? Are our hopes, our energies and resources more deeply invested in Christ than they were last year at this time? Are we praying, Lord, show me what it looks like for me to live more wholeheartedly for your kingdom under your glorious rule this coming year. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredible passage which has such profound truths, pointing and revealing as to the child who would be born and the nature of who he is and the ruler and the rule he will bring. Uh, Thank you for your son. Please may all of us here know more deeply the joy of living under his wonderful rule, we ask, as we wait for the day of his return. Amen.